everybody from the youngest age should have the opportunity to articulate themselves and express themselves through their creativity because we don't know what world will happen if that is the case. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to artists and writers about their process and politics with me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In this episode, we are honoured to talk to writer and activist Preeti Tanasia who has published the novel We That Are Young, which won the Desmond Elliott Prize and was listed for numerous international awards, as well as the non-fiction book Aftermath, which won the 2022 Gordon Byrne Prize. She is Professor of World Literature and Creative Writing at Newcastle University and broadcasts on world literature and culture for the BBC. Our focus in this episode is Preeti's non-fiction book Aftermath, written after the 2019 London Bridge attacks, where two of her colleagues, Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones, were killed by Usman Khan, someone she'd taught on a creative writing prison programme, which she'd been involved in for three years. Aftermath is an interrogation of the language of terror, trauma and grief, the fictions we believe and the voices we exclude. Contending with the pain of unspeakable loss set against public tragedy, she draws on history, memory and powerful poetic predecessors to reckon with the systemic nature of atrocity. Blurring genre and form, Aftermath is a profound attempt to regain trust after violence and to recapture a politics of hope through a determined dream of abolition. We began the podcast with a reading. Writing is living in thrall to radical doubt about what we might be capable of as if in the grip of the longing to die and the desire to make revolution, there exist two equal and opposite forces. The friction makes sparks, and in the fire, the same place a creative impulse comes from, the same place that real teaching is called from, vocating, incantation, the drive to make something that has not been imagined yet, flawed if it must be found, formed out of the fragments of what is left, in denial of what was once already there. At heart, from language, from what we teach and are taught and read. And on the flip side, who gets to write? And not only that, who is read? Whose art is allowed to be valued for public consumption? Who makes the allowance? What the allowance is? Thanks so much for starting us off with that reading. I guess kind of based on that, why is writing living in thrall to radical doubt? Kind of what does that mean and sort of... What is your position to that statement? I mean, it's to do with ethics and to do with being honest about what you don't know and how to write about that in an honest way. Um, you know, the, the word author is the root of authority, but there's something about that authority that I'm really uneasy about. And so when I'm working, I'm always trying to um, be honest about the fact that words have infinite potential to say anything you want them to say and make anything out of them. And it sounds like a facile argument, but really this idea of radical doubt is like the thrill of what you might make, but also the huge responsibility that comes with that. Um, and knowing that at the same time, you can try to do something that brings together 
an ethics, a politics and an aesthetics on the page that might change someone's mind about something. You can only try to do that. So for me, it's like a very exciting space, this radical doubt. It's not a fearful space in any way. And it's not trying to prove anything. It's just trying to try. I think linked to that, I wondered if we could talk about the structure to Aftermath. Um, For those who haven't read it, who are listening, uh, there are three parts. And the first is radical doubt, moves to radical thought, then to radical hope. And I wondered about that movement and whereabouts in the process of writing Aftermath that structuring happened and how it came about. So in relation to Aftermath book, the radical doubt section works in two ways. The first is to be honest about the fact that I lost my faith in language when this event happened. And I lost my faith in many, many things that I was always a little bit circumspect about, like, you know, police and prison and security and safety and all these myths that we're told about how we live. But also, I sort of lost my ability to connect back to the radical thinkers and and poets and things that I've always lent on for my own politics and drawn from, inspiration from and, and strength from. So radical doubt is kind of thinking through some of those problems. And on a more serious sort of factual note, it was to do with how all the things we did not know on the ground when this event happened. There were so many things that we did not know. As, as people who had taught in prison, as people who um, had been part of the Cambridge University Education Programme Learning Together, which was, um, you know, under attack in this, or was attacked, or was the site of the attack in, in this event. Um, things that police knew, that probation knew, that MI5 knew, and um, we still don't know the answers to those things. So I really wanted to make visible some of the gaps in our knowledge in that section. And one of those gaps is really, really very important to the whole book and to the way I approach the world. And that's the gap in the education system that refuses to teach empire, transatlantic slavery and the history of black lives and brown lives in the UK. Because I think it's a lacuna and a void, in fact, into which a lot of things can fill, including the algorithm that might radicalise. Um, in answer to your second section question, you know, then there's radical thought, which is where I sort of move towards returning to those thinkers and poets and writers in various different fields. So there's a philosophy, there's a political, there's a poetry and testing out over and over whether or not this event could be somehow contextualized and understood through some of that work that had already gone before me. And always falling back on this idea that, no, we were meant to believe this was one singular event that just came out of some bad, bad person's behavior. But there's there's something so questionable about that idea that an atrocity is a singular event. It belongs in a context. It belongs in a place um, which in the book I call the atrocity. So you break up that word atrocity to make a place. And of course, the roots of atro are kind of cruel and black and dark. So you've got that pun there it's an oral pun and a linguistic etymological pun and then there's a movement towards radical hope which is kind of where I wanted to get back to I was longing to get back to having lost so much in this maelstrom of emotions after this event um, and it really was about testing out and holding accountable literary culture because 
I, I really think that literary culture has a lot to answer for in terms of what it promotes and what it leads and how it creates society. And it's not just a nice book you can read and then put back on the shelf. It's creating culture all the time. So I'm testing out, you know, books which have had very, very wide mainstream critical acclaim and published from here to Alaska and then all the way to Cape Town that talk about terrorism, that talk about prison, against my own experience of teaching in prison to those people who are still probably incarcerated from when I worked with them, you know, from 2017 to 2019, and trying to move all the way to an abolitionist politics, which was very, very difficult to hold on to when, you know, you're in this knot between knowing someone who committed a terrible act of violence against someone you also knew. It's a, it's a really unusual and yet extremely normal place to be. Lots of people write to me, having read this book and email and DM and Twitter and the rest of it, and say, I didn't know how to talk about the fact that I know someone who committed a horrible crime. Or, and then I saw how the state treated them and that was really violent you know, these these difficult kind of knots of love and tension and emotion and responsibility and culpability and, and guilt and grief and survivor's guilt and so on that don't really get talked about fairly in society, but they just exist in our world. So that's the three movements of the book. And you asked me if I knew that before I started, and I suppose the first two sections were much more in my consciousness. The third section which is written in a much more essayistic way than the first two sections. So even through the craft of the book, I'm moving from a very fragmented, lyrical, compressed, poetic prose form into something that's slightly more paragraphed, slightly more stable, into the final section, which is, you know, more like literary criticism and blocks of memory. And you can just read it without having to work too hard in the ways that the rest of the book asks of the intellect and of the emotional engagement. And I think that there's something in the writing there that says, you know, it started off with these fragments of notes that when I was really grieving and shocked after the in the first few weeks after the attack, I was just making. Those are the first parts of the book. Um, and, and the final section was written right at the end after I had done all of the other processing. So there's a movement of like how to write about trauma in terms of craft and aesthetics on the page there right the way through the book. And that was conscious. Um, and then in the end, when I came to kind of work out where I needed to say what I wanted to say, the ideas for the titles of those sections just happened organically. I guess coming to the title Aftermath and the Atrocity, an initial thought of like what an aftermath is, is a reverberation after an event of some kind of catastrophe. But then it seemed that so much of like what the book um, looks at and what you've just touched on there is kind of how all of the histories and all of the cultures and all of the kind of different political constellations that have led to the, as you say, the atrocity. And so I wondered about the title because that denotes kind of like what comes after, but then there's so much with time and the way it works in the book, which kind of compresses layers between a before, a, a then, and the the aftermath. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's something that no one's actually asked me, but 
And you're right, like, I don't believe there's such a thing as a post-colonial, for example, because I don't think that moment's ever really ended. We can't think about it as kind of over. Um, and I think trauma, as I write in the book, is something that is a pattern that repeats. It's not something that's a singular moment in one's life. It comes back over and over. And anyone who's experienced trauma or complex trauma knows that. And so this aftermath title, I'm really not sure where it came from or how it happened, but it, the, this book was always called that because it was the only way to for it to have that resonance that no matter what, no matter what, like hopefully you hope as a writer, you hope that in five years or 10 years work will still be relevant and it will still be read and picked up and so on. But it will still be called Aftermath and it will still be about the aftermath of that event. So in that sense, it's still true to that concept of time holding things in layers rather than in a linear way. Um, it's not supposed to suggest that it happened and then this is what happened next because it's still happening, keeps happening. Yeah, and I was reading um, a review of Aftermath in the LA Review of Books, which wrote about the Atro City as at once a single, I'm quoting here the review, at once a single event that is all encompassing and conversely a world of structural violence crystallised in a single event. And I wondered what you made of that reading of Atro City, the concept and how it articulates in Aftermath. Yeah, I have to go back. I mean, I, I tend not to read the, my reviews because um, this is my second book. And I think the first time round, a wise, a very wise woman told me, thank you, Maureen Freely, that reviews aren't meant for us as writers, they're for the people who um, are reading those papers. And first of all, she said, don't read them. Then she said, if you are going to read them, you have to believe the bad ones as well as the good ones. <laughs> Tricky. Or the good ones as well as the bad ones. And then, you know, they're just opinions, critical opinions, subjective opinions. Because if someone's calling you, a, you know, says, for example, you, you know, this is a masterpiece. And then the next person says, this is a, this should be exterminated, which did happen to me with my first book. Then you have you have, you're sort of stuck in this moment of like who's right, who's right, and then you have to then 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 the word authority comes into its own. Then you claim your space and you say no, this is the work I did, I know why I did it, and that's okay with me. That's it. But I think listening to you quote that, I feel like that's right because. It wasn't a singular event. It does belong in a long, long context of other events and ideologies and confluences and all of the things that all of us are caught within, all of us. So obviously, as, as people in the world, we all make moral decisions about how we want to live in the world. That's undeniable. Um, but you cannot say that this, these things come out of nowhere, just as 9-11 didn't come out of nowhere. It had a long history in US oppression in Algeria and so on and so on, going back decades. So understanding that is not to de deny the fact that people have died and that there are victims of, hor of horrible violence whose, whose memories we honour and respect. But we do have to understand those contexts and not just singularise these events. How many, how many events can you singularize before you realize that actually you've got lots of singularities, right? So they surely must all have connection. Yeah, I, I think um, something that struck me so much about the book is kind of this very complex and like multi-layered way in which you're thinking about 
stories and fiction and writing and language. So we've sort of got, I don't know, you write a lot about um, what it means to be a writer. There's a section where um, you talk about like a, a split in yourself and when you're going to do a literary event and you're in your like writer's shoes, that's a kind of constructed self, a constructed story in a way. And then I guess there's also, there's your role as an educator, there's your role as a writer, there's the fact that you are teaching writing within the prison, there's the fact that you are searching for a language to articulate this trauma, also that you were trying to give the people you were working with tools maybe to articulate some of their traumas or to articulate something and I guess kind of the overall feeling of it felt to me like what is writing for or what is language for that very much felt like a question you were asking and I wondered if your view on that had changed over the course of writing the book and over the course of processing what happened. I mean yeah, I didn't teach in a prison to help people write about their trauma. I just, I, I taught in a prison because I wanted to teach in a prison. And I wanted to, when I was in, in there with the guys, all I wanted to do was help them write something they were proud of. That's it. It could have been a fairy story. It could have been a science fiction, flash fiction, anything, just to make sure that everyone walked out of that classroom knowing they could do it. That's my job as a teacher. Not to sit someone down and say, you must be so traumatised and here is a way to express that because it will redeem you or help you to get better. Or You cannot do that because no matter how much one can express one's trauma on the page, the world still exists the way that it is. You still have to go back to your cell. You still haven't seen your family for 16 years or whatever those conditions are. You know, you're still heading towards a lockdown which saw men kept in their cells for 23 hours a day. And having been through a year where we were not allowed outside and people were going, oh, it's like being in a prison. No, it is not like being in a prison. <laughs> you know. So my job as an educator is, is to make my students realise that their creativity is innate in them and they just need the tools to express it. And here are the tools. Now do the thing you want to do. And I'll be there to support you to make it the best you want it to be on your own terms. That's my job. And then as a writer going into public events, um, it's funny because I, I don't particularly think I have an unpronounceable name. I mean, it's the same two syllables, pretty. It's very simple. Um, but, 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 uh, but there's always this tendency for people to mispronounce it. So it was quite easy for me when and I know, Jessica, this is something you've thought about as well, like when you get first published and it's it's very weird stepping out of your sort of dark mole-like space into this world where you're being reviewed and you're being on stage and you're talking about your work and things. But people kept referring to me as Pretty Tanudra. And then I just realised that actually this other person is doing all of these events and going out into the world and being talked about. Pretty Tanudra, who is she? I have no idea, right? Because <laughs> it's not me. And it became quite easy to manage those two sides um, of who I am in a way. I wondered, so just like thinking through the myriad fictions that um, we encounter as readers in Aftermath, um, from the toxic fictions that are referenced such as, and there are here kind of parts of quotes like, masculinity is a fiction to itself seeking a path to its own version of glory, fictions of white supremacy, 
And then you also quote an ex-prisoner who's now a Guardian columnist, Erwin James, whose recounting of his own life story sometimes leaked into fiction. And I quote again, Harry writes that few people in prison are strong enough to be themselves. Everybody on a prison landing is a play actor. And I wondered about, so yeah, these kind of toxic fictions, what is the role of them as they're entrenched through the prison system in kind of reproducing roles of kind of the criminal or the terrorist, those kind of toxic fictions? Just to finish, to answer to Jessica's question about what is writing for, I think that is a central question of the book because it's something that I really had to grapple with because writing's always been a kind of solace for me. It's my go-to place for when I need to work stuff out. Um, and obviously I read all the time and I have since I was very young um, as a source of comfort and as a source of inspiration and a place where like I can just, you know, I have loads of friends if I'm in a bookshop or a library. But I don't know the answer still and that hasn't changed. And I don't think I knew the answer before I started, but but I but I still think that there's something innate about human creativity and writing is just one expression of that. Um, doesn't make you a better person, doesn't make you more more good. We like to think it does. So there's another fiction there that if you teach someone to write in a prison that they will become better. No. People people are people. And they might be brilliant writers and also horrible people. I mean, we all know brilliant writers who are not very nice people. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, when that crosses over into criminality, that's another question. But There's a sort of fiction of class and there's a fiction of all sorts of things going on there where we say, I have taught you in prison and I have taught you writing and therefore go in the world and be good. It's nonsense. Does it link as well to that, like the myth of developing empathy through reading? Which I think, which is touched yeah, on definitely, as definitely. Well. Yeah, so that I really do question this idea that by reading it creates empathy. I think it just creates sort of well, you feel better just because you've catharsis. You've had the catharsis, right, of of reading something that's moved you and you've cried and everything. But that doesn't mean that you'll feel differently about the people in real life that you meet who have done awful things. I mean, so many people watch really violent stuff but that doesn't make them more empathetic towards victims or those who perpetrate violence. You know. Anyway, like the question about that you were asking me about what the fictions in the prison. Um, there's a wonderful book called Axiomatic by Maria Tamarkin, who, who I also quote in Aftermath. And in it, she looks at shame as a source of many, many, many things that, are, that begin in the schoolroom. And in the schoolyard and the way she constructs is to look through look at think violent things that happen to individuals or in communities and how those communities re- recalibrate after those events so i found that book extremely moving and extremely helpful when i was writing when i was first starting to write and she's she's such an incredible thinker and i was and i agree with this point about school because and i agree with this point about shame because I think it's one of those emotions, it is a core emotion in society that, again, is you, it, it's very rarely discussed in itself in the way we talk about love or we talk about friendship or, you know, the empathy or these, these other emotions that people do talk about openly, but shame is not one of them. It's almost a shameful thing to admit there is shame. 
But there is shame and it is used to denigrate people. It's used to keep people in their place. It's used in all sorts of ways, um, insidious ways and overt ways, um, intersectional ways. And when you think about the makeup of prison and the makeup of the, of the school, you can see that if you, if you kind of transpose those, those things one on top of the other, what you're looking at is a concentrated shaming that happens in the prison system. It's constant and concentrated and there's no respite from it. And all of the things that you might have experienced in the schoolyard and the schoolroom, you can't read properly, you can't write properly, you're going to drop out of school, you have no father, you have no, you have no mother, you are, you are going to grow up and be a terrorist, you are going to be excluded. If you go out onto the street, you're black and you're more likely to be stopped and searched and therefore, you know, there's no youth, there's no youth club. The shame is that there's nowhere for you to go. You cannot hide anywhere because you're so hyper visible and yet no one can see you because they, all they see is someone tall, someone, you know, who's going to mug them or whatever it is, those fictions around us. And then you go into the prison system and all of those things are replicated and amplified and there's no respite from them. So these kinds of, you know, ways in which people act those out are going to carry on and they're going to become amplified and concentrated. So allegiances form, fronting happens. These are not things that are unusual in society that isn't incarcerated. And prison is like the most concentrated, magnified version of the shames of our and harms of our structural systems in society. It's just... It's like looking through a, a magnifying glass with the sun, you know. So I think those, what you call those fictions of terrorism do play out there too. And, you know, it's important to say as well that our prisons are disproportionately full of black men and brown men and um, disproportionately full of Muslims. You know, with the prevent strategy, you've got a situation where constantly that is the focus of prevent and that's happening in school right so prevent is a strategy it's part of the government's counter-terrorism strategy i'm putting quote marks you can't see it because it's a podcast where where kids are kind of into into who who teachers decide or people in the school decide are at risk of being radicalized get referred to this program called prevent and then they have to go through some assessments and so on and if they're considered to be at risk, then they go to the next stage of that program. But I think prevent is really, really harmful and its biases towards young Muslims, even though they're not the biggest, apparently, according to report, you know, this is the language that is used in these reports, threat. Far right groups are the biggest threat. So when you start doing that at a very young age, you're already teaching young, young Muslims that they are criminal bodies. It's so damaging. What do you expect of a child who's constantly fed that information and then no one's watching when they drop out of school and then all they have is an online world? I don't know the answers to that, but I've seen the worst effects of it in one particular case. Within the framework of Aftermath, you speak of around, in the last section, around abolition as using a metaphor of a curve And I was interested by that because I'm just going to quote a bit where you write. They say that abolition is a horizon, not an event. I see it behind me and in front as a curve. 
And that struck me quite a lot, that spatial metaphor. And I wondered if you could, yeah, speak to this curve as a metaphor of your political vision of abolition and how that, how you arrived at that. I don't think I've ever articulated my own political vision of abolition. It's more of an instinct with me. It's more of a determination to do all I can in my power, which is very limited, to to make things to make to stop the violences and the harms of structural systems that I feel like I can see around me and that just make me heartbroken. That's the only word I can use to describe it. And anguish, you know, people say, oh, Aftermath is an angry book or Aftermath is a traumatised book, but it's an anguished book. And that is that that is what is at the heart of this book. It's enough. I've had enough of watching these lives just get swept off from school out of school, onto the streets, into prison. It's just enough, okay? It's like, instead of addressing the things that are at the root cause of this stuff, like the decimation of our societies, cultural capabilities, libraries, youth centres, investing in humanities education, all of the things that make people strong and stable from a young age in communities, there is only investment in greater surveillance, in greater stop and search powers for police, in prison expansion, and that seems disgusting to me. That is disgusting to me. It's it's just not even terrifying. We are beyond terrifying with the, what the current government thinks is acceptable. And we can't even now protest it because our rights to protest are being taken away from us as well. So what do we have left? We have these conversations that are taking place where... I can hear my own voice and I can hear you in my ears. That's it. It's all like we have to kind of find a way not to to go around all of these things that are being developed to stop us from having this conversation with each other across time and space. You're at the other end of the country from me. And so for me, that spatial awareness is very important to a concept of incarceration and a concept of liberation and freedom and emancipation. And the horizon might feel like something that's always receding, but if it's always receding, then we're always on it as a curved line. That's a very grounding idea for me because it isn't something that is going to come one day. It's here now. We can make it. And there's, there's a moment where you quote Ruth Wilson Gilmore in terms of the need to act as if it's already possible. Uh, abolition exactly which really feels like part of the movement of aftermath the, the book as well yeah i mean obviously the thinkers that we've that we've benefited from in the american black american civil rights movement and the women of that movement particularly ruth wilson gilmore mariam carver um angela davis it's so important and learned so much and our task is to understand the specificities of their context and the universalities that they can bring to what we're doing, because the situation in the UK is different and differently nuanced, obviously, and inflected um, than it is in America. We have a different history. And one of those major differences is that in America, I feel like this is much more talked about and much more argued politically in the public cultural space. And why is that? It's so that here we can go, it's not happening here. There's no problems. Look over there. They've got all these problems and they're constantly talking about it. And meanwhile, we can do whatever we like to our citizenry. 
at home and in Guantanamo or Chagos Islands or wherever it is that the British put their dirty business across off our shores, right? But that's our task to not get, not fall for misdirection, to, to, to read carefully for the things that we can apply to our own context and understand those contexts so that we can put those things to best use. Mm. That links as well to the deliberate erasures and curation of the education system in terms of like how we understand empire and colonialism. Like we're taught about Wilberforce and, abol- and at the abolition of slavery, but you know there's this constant outsourcing of uh, responsibility, which feels really tied to what you say there. And then also in aftermath, when you you draw a bridge between like the dispersal inverted commas policy towards Asian pupils and but the busing system in America? Yeah, I mean, people don't realise that a form of, that we, I mean, it's the same word, but it was used slightly differently in America, busing here and there. And um, in the UK, South Asian communities were bused, kids from those communities were bused to white areas. And they were known as the Pakis on the bus. So there was like a lot of racism around them going to those schools. But of course, it didn't go the other way. The bus did not go the other way. The white kids did not come to the brown areas because the school district, they knew that those were not good schools, right? So, but they, but they didn't, but the reason it happened in, in England is because they did not want people to form community. They wanted to force through an assimilation process by taking these kids out of their context into white schools, into white areas. And then, you know, you're like this, like little island of hyper-visible brown skin and, you know, constantly being told that, and I'm, you know, partly drawing from experience, partly drawing from imagination. Obviously, I'm too young to have gone through busing and, um, and so on. But all of the cruelties of that moment of kind of smelling different, looking different your hair is different your clothes are different your you've got two three languages in your brain so you can't write the same way as everybody else like all of these things make you very very self-conscious and then we've got the shame kicking in again so you check you either assimilate or you don't i mean you assimilate to the extent that you know you can survive it and then you go home and you don't fit in anymore so who are you and that that is the question that publishing let's just go back to literary culture loves to ask of brown and black writers who are you it's the literary version of where are you really from and so you end up having to write these novels where you're constantly doing you know the assimilationist journey because that's what publishing wants to put out there um and i think that's changing now like more and more black and asian writers are writing whatever they want to write and being published because obviously it's the publishing part that hasn't been happening not the writing part um, so now lots of people are writing love stories, or science fiction or crime, crime novels or historical fiction or whatever it is they want to write, not just, you know, arrival to assimilation narratives. So maybe things are changing. Yeah, um, I pulled out a quote from you that said, um, you must only write debut fiction as a beautiful immigrant romance towards the sovereign light, um, which feels very connected. And I guess sort of kind of thinking about that but also thinking about this idea of fictions or who is given the right to tell a story or who is telling this particular story and who the onus falls on I'm kind of interested in your use of 
first person, second person, third person, and the way they switch throughout the book and sort of this idea of unreliable narration. And I wondered if you could talk about that. So the switches are very particular. With this event, it touched so many people's lives and so many people are very deeply affected um, in all sorts of ways, uncountable ways. There were, you know, people who had just it kind of encountered Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones in part of their lives, and those are the names of the two young people that died. Or they knew them better, or they were their lovers or their friends and their parents and so on, and those are the core kind of people involved. And then there were the teachers and people who'd been in prison, people like me who'd known both perpetrator and victims. And and so I had to work out what I could offer this. Um, and I'm not a criminologist, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a journalist, I'm a writer, and my job was to teach creative writing in that prison. Jack was my programme coordinator, and um, the perpetrator was my student. So, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, I can only place myself in that through the first person. It's really important not to universalise, because it's such a, it's such a weird mo- thing to be that person, but also to be South Asian. It's an Indian. I'm not Muslim. There's a kind of class element to the way that's that's worked as well because of the way class and immigration happened in waves, Indians in certain bands and Muslims in a different band. So the first person's really important from that perspective to root the book in my sense of identity and who I was and why I was there because that's completely how I reacted to the to what happened and then the second person fulfills lots of different functions in ways sort of asking the reader to come with me on the journey um asking the reader to think what they would do in similar situation and sometimes it's to do with the split between the person I was before the event and the person I was afterwards. And again, I feel like anyone who's been through something incredibly traumatic that happens sort of almost in an instant rather than a trauma that's chronic over time, like serial abuse, for example, you cannot, um, you cannot go back. One day you, one day these people are in the world and you knew them and you thought you knew how everything was working pretty much, even if you had suspicions that it wasn't as, as as all it was cracked up to be, everyone has those. And the next day, everything changed. And so for me to write that, it's basically like thinking about someone who is no longer here, that pretty does not exist anymore. And I'd love to fight that language. I hesitate to say this, but even the English language, or especially the English language, offers us the possibilities of thinking about time in these multi-ways, multi-layered ways. And there is something to be said for exploring that in a book like this, to create the experiences or recreate the experiences for the reader, to help them perhaps think through whatever it is they've been going through. Like I said, you know, I've I've had so many letters from readers just saying someone I knew committed crime and someone I and then I saw them go through this date or I got hurt by somebody and then someone I loved did the same thing to someone else and I didn't know how to think about it. And, you know, all of us 
have these stories there's there's so rarely a moment in, when I talk about this book in public that someone doesn't come up to me afterwards and says this happened to me this happened to me or I tried to whistleblow against an institution and I was just shut down and silenced and I've never written again or I've never spoken again so it's important I think to find ways in language to to reach people on the on, on the level of whatever they're going through and you cannot know that as a writer yeah I think there's a um there's a an interesting section towards the end of the book where you talk about as writing as insisting more and I feel like maybe that's connected wow you really read this book yes I think I meant I think that's in the section where I'm kind of looking at how fiction writers have gone about articulating the prison or the idea of the terrorist and maybe it connects into some of the more wider questions of culture and appropriation that have been so much part of the last decade or so, quite rightly. And I do want to insist on more. I do want to insist that some writers do their jobs better instead of just thinking that all readers are them or like them or have the same cosy ideas of what blackness is or brownness is or terrorism is or the function of whiteness in prison or all the all these things that I'm talking about through their fictions in the book. Um, I need them to do better. I need editors to do better because they are creating a culture which allows, which contributes to state-sanctioned violence against vulnerable lives. And no, none of them would admit that or want to think that, you know. They'd be... It's difficult to come across yourself and say, actually, I am part of the problem. We saw that with Black Lives Matter. People were so resistant to the idea that they could be racist too, that they probably were, and they had expressed that to people around them or to black people that they knew, even those they say they loved. But there's a, so there's only one life and there's only 10 minutes in it, you know, essentially, of your time on this earth what are you going to do right if you're going to sit there and write a book make it make it matter do it right don't just think you know yeah th- there's a tension in aftermath between the limits of language in the aftermath and and you speak about how in the immediate a- aftermath you lost faith in poetry and felt cut from revolutionary feminists who had so like such as tony morrison who you quote, I'd always believed her before talking about the importance of art. There's a tension between that and then a moment in Radical Hope when there's a sense of something shifting towards the end of the book where you write, now she starts dreaming of different possibilities and worlds, a way not to have to question of what art is to be considered as a good, as a luxury, but instead consider it an essential part of human development and of an equal society. And I wondered about coming to to that kind of very complex shifting that occurs in in aftermath and the process of that in terms of what art could be yeah so like i said um i mean i've been reading tony morrison since i was 16 17 and i remember you know studying beloved at school as the first book by a woman of color that had been on the curriculum at all I think I was 16 by then, so 17. Um, And it mattered to me. And then later on, I began to ask myself, why was she the only person? And that's to do with publishing and dissemination. I 
I felt like I had no right to take this event to those thinkers because the context felt so separate and different for me. And some of the work in the book is about re-threading the history back together in the right order to allow the holding of this particular event and this, you know, young South Asian Muslim British person who was totally failed by the system and ended up doing something unspeakable and awful um, in which people I cared about died. And that's the work of the book, you know, to come back to the moment where you can actually say, we can't necessarily think that just because someone's written something and they're able to write something that's moving, that they're diff- that they're a good person. But we can say that everybody from the youngest age should have the opportunity to articulate themselves and express themselves through their creativity, because we don't know what world will happen if that is the case. And that shouldn't be shut down. And it was good to get back to that, to get to that clarity. You know, you do want to believe that books can change things. You do want to believe that writing can change people's minds or change society in some way. That feels like a good moment to to finish on. But thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you. I'm so touched at the depth of your reading and the, the openness with which you've come to the work. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tender Buttons, then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find StorySmith Books on North Street in Bedminster, Bristol, and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.